before I get into the teaching this morning, uh, I need to do something. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, as I've been thinking about this message and putting my thoughts together, um, I had a song pop into my head and it wouldn't stop. You ever had that happen? Like the hook would just repeat, not even the whole song. I don't even know all the lyrics. I just, the hook over and over and over. And, and uh, it's been kind of annoying. This song um, was from a little over 20 years ago. It was a collaboration between the Newsboys, and this is Peter Furler, the real Newsboys, Peter Furler's Newsboys, and, uh, and VeggieTales. And uh, yeah, think about that. Newsboys and VeggieTales. Uh, both the Newsboys and VeggieTales were kind of at their peak at this point. The song isn't especially deep, uh, though the, there are no significant deep theological themes running through it, uh, but it would not give my brain a rest for like the last week and a half. So I have found that the best way to get rid of those earworms is to just kind of play the song and play it really loud. And uh, so I just want to, I really feel in order for me to get through this message today with any kind of clarity and co- or cohesive thought at all, um, I need to release my brain from this song uh, that's been occupying my headspace. So I give you. Veggie Tales and the Newsboys from 2002. This is In the Belly of the Whale. Enjoy.
that should do it. I think we're good now. So, uh, if for the, and I don't even, I don't, I'm just going to get into this. Uh, you're like, what is wrong with you? I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, so today I want to look at a pretty familiar story in the Old Testament in a little, little book that's kind of hard to find, but I guarantee you know the story, or at least part of the story. We're going to talk a little bit about Jonah. Here's what uh, we know about Jonah. Uh, maybe this is where our lives intersect with Jonah's. Jonah was a man who ran from God. And all of us, on, on, to one degree or another, have at some point run from God, I'm guessing. That might be part of your story at some time, maybe a period of your life or a moment in time. Uh, it, it, and it's not really so much of a stretch for us to look at the story of Jonah and find that while we may not identify with the idea of God calling us to a very you know, specific time and place and action as he did with Jonah, and even though we may not identify with physically running from God's call like in the actual opposite direction, and certainly not, I would think, with the whole whale thing. But if we're honest, most of us can actually identify uh, with Jonah in this, that Jonah, like, so, uh, like us so many times, was a man who ran from what God had clearly told him to do. God had said, I want you to go to Nineveh, this ancient city in modern-day Iraq. I want you to tell them that they need to repent of their sin. And Jonah's like, I believe in you, God. Like, I'm your man. You know that. I believe in the law. I try to keep the commandments and all that stuff. But that, nope, not going to do that. And I've taught from this story a few times over the years, and I've always drawn out kind of the big kind of lessons, lessons like you can run from God, but you can't outrun God, right? Like we see that in Jonah's story. Many of us have discovered that in our own lives. In this story, we learn that God is very generous with his grace, but he's thorough in his discipline, that God is generous with his grace. That is, you, you can't get outside the boundaries of his grace, uh, but he's thorough with his discipline, that God disciplines the people he loves. And if you've been disciplined uh, by God through some circumstances or even the consequences of your decisions, uh, that is actually God's love. <clears throat> In Jonah's story, we see that God doesn't discipline to pay us back, that God disciplines to bring us back. And so many of us have experienced this kind of stuff in our lives, the discipline of God that serves as a path to bring us back to Him, to bring us back into a restored relationship with God. And you know, um, we, you make some poor choices, you suffer some natural consequences, maybe circumstances get chaotic, and at some point in that experience you say, you know what God, I'm back. I, I learned my lesson, I'm waving the white flag, I'm surrendering to you. God disciplines us to bring us back. Now, if the story ended there, where it would be uh, an appropriate place for the story of Jonah to end, that Jonah rebels, runs from God, comes back, God gives him a second chance, end of story. That's actually only half the story. In fact, the famous part of the story of Jonah, like Jonah and the whale, or, or Jonah and the fish, you know, depending on your church tradition and which translation of the Bible you grew up reading, because did you know that a whale and a fish are not the same species? So I'm just clarifying that in case you were wondering. But depending on the version of the Bible you're reading, so, and, and people spend time debating these kinds of things, I don't really care. Uh, but either way, Jonah gets eaten by this thing that has a large mouth, and then he gets spit out. And that's the famous part. But that's not the whole point of the story. So today I want to jump into the middle of the story because you know the first part. But I want to jump in right where the story takes an unexpected twist because it doesn't end the way that you would expect it to end. It doesn't end the way it would end if you and I were writing the story. Like you would think that Jonah now is so dedicated and so in love with God that he would do whatever God wanted him to do. 
and be happy about it, but that wasn't the case. So we're going to jump in and look at these last two chapters of Jonah. We're going to start with Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, if you're still trying to find it in your print Bible, um, you'll catch up eventually. If you use the Bible app, you can get there probably a whole lot faster. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord. So this is after the whole whale thing, okay? <clears throat> these on the boat, toss into the water, whale slash fish eats him. Uh, then pukes him up on the beach. He goes to Nineveh, and here's where we're at. Or he's heading out to Nineveh now. So, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh. So like, remember, I told you this already, so I'm just telling you again. Plan's the same. Go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim to it the message that I gave you. And Jonah, <laughs> surprise, obeyed the word of the Lord, I'd like to say this time, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. So it's kind of like, I don't know, Boston at five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, takes about three days to drive through. Here's the picture. Jonah didn't just get out of the belly of the fish and in a couple of days arrive in Nineveh. At this point, he's still five or 600 miles away. Took him probably a month or so to get there. And then once he gets there to the outskirts of the city, the city is so large and the area is so vast, it would take three days just to walk through the city. <clears throat> Verse four. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh, Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So like, there he is. I don't know if he's wearing like a sandwich board or whatever, but like proclaiming, you know, the end is near, the end is near, repent, I don't know. But the, here's, the, here's the point. The Ninevites, in response to his preaching, believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 6, And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, the king says, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. In verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is like unbelievable. These people, these Ninevites, they were wicked people. Like they were pagan people. They had all kinds of pagan rituals. They were so far away from God. I don't know, maybe you know people like this. Maybe people at work or friends or maybe even members of your extended family. And you're like, I know there is no one outside of God's grace. Like, I know that to be true. But there is no way he'll become a Christian. There is no way she'll ever become a Christian. I mean, they're just not interested. Like, they're happy with their lives. They're content with the thing they got going on. There's no possible way. That's the kind of people that the Ninevites were. Just unbelievable that they would respond in this way. And again, we see this theme that just works its way throughout this little book of four chapters. That God had obviously prepared these people. So this wasn't a zero to 60 kind of thing. Like, like somehow Jonah shows up and they're like, oh wow, we never thought of that. No, clearly God had prepared the way. Something had happened in the lives of these people. Something had happened in the life of this city. And when Jonah showed up, the people were ready. So if you study history... And we discovered that north of the city were these mountains, and in these mountains lived several tribes of people who had joined together. They were basically like marauders. And they had taken over small town after small town, and had begun to push their frontier kind of closer and closer to Assyria. And in fact, at this point, the frontier that these mountain people had developed was probably less than 100 miles from Nineveh. So the enemy was only 100 miles away. And it was pretty clear they were coming for them. 
So these people had lived in, for several years under the threat of invasion. And this isn't in the text, but I believe that God had probably used this pressure to get their attention. And in addition to this threat from the outside, twice in the previous five years, severe plagues had ripped through the area. Hundreds and thousands of people had been killed by these plagues. So by the time Jonah shows up, God pretty much has their attention. Things weren't going so well in Nineveh. And though they'd put up a good front to Israel, and though they'd threatened Israel for years and years and years, there was some instability. And so while God had worked behind the scenes, it seems like all of a sudden into this environment walks Jonah, this like intense raving lunatic, right? I mean, he's, he, I'm sure he had an interesting look going on after spending three days and a couple of months, three days in the stomach of a, of a whale, and then uh, a couple of months or whatever, walking through whatever desert. And he announces that God is going to come down on them and they are ready, like they're ready to hear it. And revival breaks out, and these people believe in the true living God. They walk away from their evil, and they leave their sin behind. There's a great deal of application here for us, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but God is still in the business of preparing people's hearts. He's still in the business of using circumstances and environments so people are open and ready to hear and respond to the gospel. There are people that you and I know and we think, well, I would never talk to them about Jesus. Like, I could never invite them to church or, like, talk to them about spiritual things or my faith. They got their act together. They're not interested. And oftentimes, I think you and I miss opportunities because we say, well, they just don't seem ready. They don't look like the type of person who would ever, you know, become a follower of Jesus. She doesn't te- seem like the ty- type of person who thinks she even needs God, you know. But we don't know what's going on inside. And we know from our own stories and from the stories of others, and certainly from the story of Jonah, that God is constantly at work in the hearts and lives of people, and we just don't know. And we should know that oftentimes when we get that prompting from the Holy Spirit, hey, you should talk with her. You should share your experience with him. This is it. Like, this is the opportunity that you've been waiting for because oftentimes God does the background work, and he wants us to come in and do our part to bring that person another step closer to him. But there's something in us that doesn't always recognize and appreciate that. Uh, I mean, how often do do you and I hesitate to talk about our faith in certain settings with certain people because we're like, oh, he doesn't seem ready or she doesn't seem open or I don't think they're that interested and I don't want to be offensive. And the good news is that part is not our responsibility. But that's what happened in Nineveh. Like, we don't know, it might have been all this pressure from the outside, but God had somehow been working to prepare these people so that when Jonah showed up with a very simple message, I mean, mean, try that at work sometimes. 40 days and this place is going to be overthrown. And these people repent and and the king repents. And there's a great revival. And you would think that from this point on that we'd be able to predict what happens. But there's a a story, there's a strange twist in this story. To me, this kind of stuff really validates the truth of these stories because uh, I think if you read the story of Jonah and you're like, this can't be true, this is just a parable. But if we were making this up, we wouldn't put this next part in. Because the next chapter is almost as difficult to believe as the part about Jonah being swallowed by a fish and barfed on the beach. So, um, verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. In a sense, like God changed his mind. Like, how cool is that? Like, that's what the text means. He decided to withhold what they deserved because of their repentance. Now you'd think that Jonah, 
Like the evangelist, the prophet here would be excited. He would see the parallel between his situation and the people of Nineveh. You would think that Jonah would be thrilled that the people heeded his warning, repented, turned to God. You'd think he'd be celebrating all of that, but now he's ticked off. Verse 1 of chapter 4, <clears throat> but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Like, this is unbelievable. Like, here's Jonah, and he's mad at God. He's mad at God for changing his mind. Like, he's in the middle of what God is doing, and he's mad at what's happening. Says he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, what I, that is why I, what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Like you're loving, you're compassion, you're patient, you're good to people, you give them a second chance. I knew that's the kind of God you were, and so I'm mad about that. <laughs> he says, now Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I think part of the reason he wants to die is because he knows he can't go home, first of all. Because if he goes home, people are going to be like, where you been? You've been gone a while. Why well, went to Nineveh? And they're like, Nineveh? Like, you were in Nineveh and you made it out alive? So, like, what happened? Well, God was, like, uh, totally fed up with the Ninevites, and he's about to wipe them out. Well, it's about time. What happened? So they gone. They, well, I warned them, and they repented. There's this huge revival, and now God's given them more time, like he always does. Jonah's like, I can't go home and deal with that. I'd rather die. Back in chapter 3, it says, The news reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And he issues this proclamation that everyone call urgently on God. So this whole thing is kind of just unreal. The king here is not only the king of Nineveh, he's the king of the whole region. This is, this is like an amazing widespread revival. There's no other parallel in the Bible of a Gentile nation having revival like this. And Jonah's the hero. Jonah's the point man for God, and he's mad about it. <laughs> he says, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew this would happen. It happens all the time. You're just that kind of God. You're too nice. People repent, and you change your mind. People deserve something, God, and you don't give it to them. I can't believe you didn't give them what they had coming. I can't believe you bailed them out again. I can't believe you'd overlook their sin and show them that kind of grace. And God's thinking, short memory, Jonah. Short memory, Here's the thing, Jonah's prejudice against these people was so strong, and his prejudice against these people blinded him to the grace that he had received. We read this story and we think, what a jerk, nobody could be that blind. But here's a man who was so concerned, see, he grew up hating the Ninevites, Israel hated the Ninevites, and they hated everything about their culture. And his prejudice was so strong that even when they came to faith in God, he was angry that they'd come to faith in God. He was angry at God that this had happened. So God asked him this penetrating question, verse 4. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Like, Jonah, buddy, think about it. Do you have any right to be angry? So, like, here's where I start to feel a little uncomfortable and a little convicted. Because Jonah had like perfect theology. He's a smart guy. He knew all about God. Like he's having a conversation with God. Like how cool is that? You know, he's a compassionate God. He's a just God. He's a forgiving God. He had all this stuff down. There was only one problem. All this knowledge 
never sunk into where it affected his concern for other people. He had all the truth down, he had all the theology down, he filled in all the blanks, but somehow when it came to being applied, when it came to time to, for him to see the relevance of that truth to his responsibility, he missed it. He never saw it. He never felt any obligation to the Ninevites. So here he was, a picture of God's grace. Here he was, a man who'd been delivered, a man who who deserved to die, I guess, from God's perspective, a man who ran from God in complete and utter disobedience to God, and God came after him and rescued him. He's an amazing picture of the goodness and grace of God. But Jonah never saw the connection between what God had done in his life and his responsibility, his obligation to share that with anybody else. Like, why? So, like, how did he miss this so badly? I think it's because he had this strong prejudice. And he didn't care. He just wasn't that concerned. So God asked him, do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah doesn't even answer it. And then God does what he's so good at doing. He designed another circumstance to teach Jonah a lesson. So look at this, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. (coughs) There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So nobody really knows what he's doing. He probably, probably what happened is he went outside the city and all the people are happy, they're rejoicing, they're changing their ways, and he's mad. He's like, yay, God, you forgave them. Yeah, good for you. And he builds a shelter. He's going to sit there and see if God really did change his mind to see if maybe God would change his mind back again and bring destruction after all. He was waiting for the show. Verse 6. The Lord provided a leafy plant. They made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. (laughs) Yeah, you're seeing it. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. What else had the Lord provided in this story? Provided a boat. Provided a storm. Provided a fish. Here's this theme that God intervenes in the lives of people to bring them back to Him. So God provides this vine of some kind and causes it to grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, God provided something else. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. A scorching east wind. And this, we don't know what that is, but in this part of the world, these winds are called Sirocco. It's a wind that kicks up out of nowhere and and the temperature rises anywhere from 15 to 25 degrees like almost immediately. And these winds are dangerous to be exposed to and everyone kind of stops working and heads for shelter. And so the Sirocco head kicks up. It says the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And again, he wanted to die. So let's just get the picture. He's mad that God saved these people. Way to go, God. I knew you were going to do that. You always do that. I can't believe you'd show grace and be good to these people. Still didn't see the connection. Goes out there just hoping that God would change his mind back to the original plan. He's sitting there waiting. God provides his plant, these giant leaves, and God causes it to grow up overnight, and he wakes up, and all of a sudden he's happy. Now he's been mad because God saved these people. Now he's happy because he's got a plant. And just as he's getting attached to the plant, God provides a worm, and the worm comes along and eats the plant, and it dies, and Jonah's mad again. 
Then God sends a scorching east wind, and a rather, it's a rather common occurrence in that part of the world, and this wind was so hot and so fierce that people would you know, run for shelter, and it's ferocious. So there he is, sitting out there in the open, and he's just like dying, he's burning up, he's miserable, and he says to God, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Like, I'd be better off dead. So here's, I think we see the problem. Earlier, here he is in the belly of this fish slash whale saying, I don't want to die. God, can you hear me? I don't want to die. This is disgusting. So however, you got to get me out of here. I'm up for it because I don't want to die. And now he's saying, please, God, kill me because I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. And God delivers the punchline and he focuses his attention in hours and makes it clear for him what he should have seen all along without any help. Verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals and the book ends. <laughs> Some people say that that's how many children there were. Um, maybe it just meant that there's that many people that are clueless as to who God is. You know, it's like, I think, I think he's, God's saying, Jonah, at least you know me. These people are clueless. Like, like, at least you know me. They know nothing about me. They're like children. They're so immature. They're worshiping pieces of wood and pieces of rock. They think those are gods. They have no clue at all. And in this statement, God asks a question. It's at the beginning of verse 10, and the question is an indictment. And then the book ends, and here's the question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And then we're done. The question in context is, Jonah, you're concerned about a vine that you didn't create. You're concerned about a vine that's going to be gone soon anyway. But I'm concerned about a nation of people who don't know the first thing about me. I'm concerned about a nation of eternal souls. Jonah, think about it. You're concerned about the wrong stuff. I invited you into to be a partner with me, to partner with me in warning the people that if they don't change, they're going to get what they deserve, and I don't want them to get what they deserve, and here you are, you're so concerned about the wrong things. You missed it, Jonah. And here's where this kind of opens me up, turns me inside out. <clears throat> God has given me and God has given you the responsibility of this generation of non-believers that we do life with. Did you know that? It's our responsibility. Like Jesus may not come back for another thousand years, who knows, but this generation of non-believers is my responsibility and it's your responsibility. And when I come to the end of this book, it's as if God could rephrase the question for us and say, I'm concerned about a generation of lost people. I'm concerned about a generation of teenagers. I'm concerned about a generation of young adults. I'm concerned about a generation of children. I'm concerned about a generation of eternal souls. And you're concerned about fill in the blank. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> it's not that um, you and I like, don't want people to come to Jesus. That's not it at all. It's just that it's not always our primary concern. I'm more concerned about getting through the checkout line behind that person who apparently has never seen a self-checkout before than I am about the person in front of me. 
who's never seen a self-checkout before. Like, I'm concerned about the wrong things. I'm more concerned about getting my food fast and hot wherever I go to eat after church today than I am about the person bringing me my food. We're more concerned about, I don't know, getting our hair done the way we want it than we are about the person doing it. We're more concerned about getting, getting my car repaired properly and at a fair price and on my timetable than I am about the person repairing it. And on and on we could go. And as we examine ourselves, we could conclude that we are far more concerned about the service we get and the things that people do for us than we care about the people serving us. When I read verses 9 and 10 and I hear God saying, I'm concerned about a generation of people, what are you concerned about? Like, what really bothers you? He's kind of asking, what do you get angry about? Like, we're quick to criticize Jonah. Like, hey, Jonah, you're angry about a vine. Come on, grow up. Hey, buddy, get the big picture. You're angry about a plant. This whole nation could have died and gone to hell. You don't even care. But I ask myself the same question. Like, what, do I, what am I concerned about? What do I get angry about? I, like, I ask you the same question. What concerns you? Like, what engages your emotions? Are we concerned about a generation of lost people? I don't tend to get too angry about that. I get angry about taxes, and I get angry about traffic, and my favorite sports team losing for 30 friggin' years. And what, sorry, and what... I, and you're like, which team? All of them. And I was talking with Bob today, and he was, because uh, Bob's the, wearing his, he's a loyal Patriots fan, wearing his jersey today, I don't know where he is, but um, I, I talk, you want to know how, how long it's been since my team won, uh, my jersey fit 30 pounds ago. So um, <laughs> we get angry about some, what somebody said on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and uh, so maybe God could rephrase this. So, so you're angry about taxes and traffic and your favorite sports team and what somebody said on social media, and I'm concerned about a generation of lost people. Ooh, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> this morning when you came in, there's a piece of paper with a picture of a tree, a little picture like that. And if you're sitting on it, maybe you can grab the one next to you. I don't know. We don't know what Jonah's vine looked like, so we're just going to let this fern-looking thing represent the vine. If you could just find that picture and hold it in your hand for a second. Everybody get that little piece of paper. There should be one near you. I want to attach some meaning to this little picture. I want you to, to do something here for me and with me. This is just something to get us thinking together as a church. If this little tree represented the thing that you get concerned about to the neglect of the people around you, what would this picture represent in your life? Like, in other words, we've got all kinds of concerns, right? And most of our concerns are valid. So we're not trying to determine what's a right concern and a wrong concern. I'm asking you, which of your good, valid concerns are the ones that oftentimes get in the way of you expressing and showing concern for people? People who are going to live forever Somewhere. Uh, just to get you thinking, an example. It could be something like your reputation or your image. 
It's like, I know, I, I hope that everybody that I know comes to Christ, but when I'm at work I'm, and I'm given a golden opportunity to share my story and talk about my faith in Jesus or something that rises up in me, that I'm more concerned of what they think of me than I am about where they spend eternity. That's the truth. Maybe it's your schedule, and you're like, well, I'm a strict by-the-clock, scheduled-out person. Like, you leave at a certain time, you do this at a certain time, you spend this amount of time doing that, and it's Tuesday, so we have to do that, and you always do this on Thursday, so you're a busy, busy person, and you're in high demand, and I get that most people don't realize how important you are. But every once in a while, there's somebody that comes into your life where there's an opportunity to give them some time, to pause and to give them some time and attention to listen, to engage, maybe to share your faith, but you're busy, busy, busy. You've got stuff. You got, you're on a schedule. You've got stuff to do. You can't get involved with that. You can't help out with this or that because you are on task and, and you've got important things to get to and take care of, and your concern for all that stuff gets in the way. And when we say, like, we're praying for our unchurched, unbelieving friends, we're all like, amen, yes, that's right. But when it comes time to like get involved in their lives or maybe to get involved in the life of church so that we can serve the spiritual and emotional and physical needs of the people around us, when it, time, it comes time to get off the sidelines and get involved and get some skin in the game, when it comes time to interject your story, we have no passion left for the people in our lives that God's put there for us to reach. And we have a responsibility to our generation for the time that we're here breathing oxygen. So what's this little tree represent for you? Could be a habit. Could be a hobby. Could be some leisure activity. It could be your image, how good you look. And you do look good. But what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear, what house you, whatever. When you think about the people that God's put in your life and you examine the opportunities you're given to pour into them, to serve them, to begin to share your faith story with them, what is the thing that rises up and gets in the way and prevents that from happening? <clears throat> what is it that becomes a bigger concern? Like, here's the thing about our concerns. They are temporary. Just like a vine, they will wilt and die. And we will have sacrificed what is eternal for the sake of what is temporary. So you see what I'm getting at? Like, I want to be critical of Jonah. I want to say, good grief, what is your problem? Like, do you not see it? But the very same fault in his thinking is often mine. And often yours, I'm guessing. Because we all have truth. Like, we all have the truth. We all have access to to truth. And if you were to ask me the difficult theological questions, I could answer some of them, maybe. We know the stuff, but you know something? To a great degree, I think that truth has not sunk down into our thinking and our emotions and to the point where it changes our view of people, where we've allowed it to impact us to the point where we feel an obligation to our unbelieving friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. As followers of Jesus, we've been given the responsibility of an unbelieving generation, and it's our obligation to get concerned, and to be concerned, and to allow that concern to settle down to where it bothers us, so we're more concerned about that than anything else. I think God's word to us this morning through the story of Jonah is, I'm concerned about a generation of lost people, and you're concerned about what? Like, how selfish and how self-centered of us to have been given 
so much spiritually, right? To be blessed by God, to have been given Christian friends and know the blessing of fellowship and deep community in the church and principles for life and all these things. Like how strangely selfish to have been blessed with all of that and yet not feel any compulsion to share that with anyone else. That's strange. But isn't that, that's what Jonah did. And I think we're equally guilty on some level. So you may be here and you're not a Christian and maybe you're not a religious person at all. And so you're trying to figure out like what any of this has to do with you. Uh, maybe part of your reasoning for not being a Christian is that you've met too many Christians. I get that. Like who in a very general way uh, have said, like, here's what I believe, but in their behavior, there was something else that was actually more important. And you just saw through that and it turned you off. I just want you to know that's not an issue with God. That's our fault. That's not a reflection of who Jesus is. That's a reflection of our own misplaced priorities and our own hypocrisy. And I'm sorry that the church that we've allowed momentary, temporary passing here today and gone tomorrow concerns to get in the way of us being to you who our Heavenly Father has called us to be. One sign of spiritual maturity is the degree to which our concerns line up with the concerns of God. To be like Christ is to, to have what I'm concerned about line up with what He's concerned about. And the problem with Jonah and the problem with you and I sometimes is that we love God and we sing to God and we know all the stuff, but our concerns just don't line up. And so the question is, what are you concerned about and how does it line up with what God's concerned about? Now, I think I'm going to do like, just like the book of Jonah, I'm just going to end this sermon. And I think I'm going to ask a difficult question and then we'll ask God to show us what to do. So the way I'd like to end this, this message is to simply pray. And as I do, I'd like you to simply ask yourself a couple questions. <clears throat> like number one, God's concerned about a generation of lost people. What am I concerned about? Then number two, I'd like you to think for just a few seconds about how God has blessed you, how God has forgiven you. Just meditate on what God has done in your life. Just think for a minute of all the ways that you've been blessed by him and then ask, how could I, God, like, God, how could I live a day of my life without a sense of obligation to share this with somebody else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, uh, wow, it is easy to judge Jonah. We all tend to think that we would have done this differently, but we respond like him maybe every day. God, I pray that you give us clarity as we examine ourselves, as we examine our own lives, and ask ourselves, like, what am I concerned about? And does it line up with what you're concerned about? I pray that you would overwhelm us with what you've already done for us, that we would live with a sense of obligation to share that good news with those around us.